Thank you all for tuning in. With me today is somatic experiencing practitioner and coach Julia Yonker. Julia is the owner of Life Untethered Coaching, and as a coach and somatic experiencing practitioner, Julia works with outdoor enthusiasts and other trauma survivors operating with stress or underlying relational trauma. Julia is an adventurologist. She has a great love for the wilderness and has years of experience canyoneering, rock and ice climbing, skiing, whitewater boating, dirt biking, wild ice skating, camping, and backpacking. That is so awesome. (laughs) It's such a wonderful (laughs) wide variety of experience. Um, Anything you would like to add to your introduction and your pedigree here? Yeah, when you put it that way, just looking at everything, it's like there's been so much that I've been up to, and, and life has such a wild way of wandering its way through. And yeah, I, I started out as wanting to be a professional horse person and going to the Olympics, and I started on that track and um, decided that I didn't actually want to do it, and I moved to Bozeman. And so here I am doing all this stuff. So it's it's been a wild ride. Yeah, well, thank you for joining me today. It means a lot that you're willing to put in the time, and I've had some wonderful conversations with you already. And I'm so excited to learn more and hear more and share your work with our audience. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So our icebreaker is to tell a story of an outdoor adventure that went hilariously wrong, something that you learned something from and can look back now and be like, oh, it was kind of challenging, but (laughs) it was fun in the end, and I learned a lot. Yeah, totally. I know. Uh, When you were um, asking about that and, and, you know, have invited me to have a story ready I was like oh hilarious I'm like well what does humor mean and you know oftentimes when something turns out the way that you don't expect it it can be humorous right because it was a really serious situation but at the same time um, it is kind of funny to look back on and so I um, when I was moving to Montana I'd grown up wandering in the woods behind my house but I'd never really been in the wilderness and like Mm -hmm. gone on wilderness adventures like striking off from some random trailhead in country I didn't know Mm -hmm. and I went into the badlands of South Dakota on my way here and went on a hike on a boardwalk, meant to go for 15 minutes. I was so grumpy that day. I was tired. I hadn't slept well. I was just meh. And so um, I went on this hike for 15 minutes and once I was there, I, I, nature like drew me in and drew me out of my shell and I got engaged and I was like, oh, what's this over here? And what's that over there? And before long, I was like, screw this boardwalk crap. Like <laughs> if there are animals here, they would be down there and like off the top of this butte down in that little draw or like in the, in the canyon bottom. I'd never been in country like that before. Badlands and sort of canyons and stuff like that. Wind and water sculpted environment. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wandered down off the boardwalk and the face, the surface of the rock there is like climbing on cornmeal almost. And so it was really slippery. And I noticed that there's a big hole right below where I'd been climbing down. And I was like, oh, if I had slipped and started falling, I would have fallen into this big hole and I wouldn't have been able to get out of it. It was like a weird, almost straight up and down tunnel, right? Hmm. And so I was like, I should not go back up this way. I'm going to hike around the Ridge of Buttes to get back to my car. And I was never able to find my way back to my car. And the clouds were like really low that day. Hmm. And I couldn't see the sun. I couldn't really barely see the tops of the buttes. And I got so turned around, I couldn't even point to my car anymore at some point. And so I was very lost. It was early December. 
it got down to the low teens that night. And I just, there I was on my own. And um, I spent the night like sitting there, like twiddling my thumbs all night long. And I just did think it was kind of funny because I was like, oh, I know I'm fine. I'm going to be fine for one night. I'm sure everybody is so worried about me. And Mm -hmm. it was true. Everyone was like, oh, she must be dead because, you know, something must be horribly wrong. And I'm like, no, I just got lost. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so I learned a lot from that. Basically, to always carry a kit with me, even if I think I'm only going for a 10-minute hike. You know, basically, if I leave the car, I should have a lighter. I should have a knife. Mm -hmm. I had my phone. I didn't have service. Um, But just a few things to, like, help if I am in an emergency situation again, as well as the importance of keeping track of your back trail, so to speak. Like, if you did need to go back the way that you came, could you find it? Like, Mm -hmm. stopping and turning around. We always, like, we tend to face forward. Mm-hmm. turning around and looking to see what it looks like behind us mm-hmm. so that if I do need to go back that way, I'll be like, oh, I know which way to turn here. This looks familiar. So, Wow, yeah. That reminds me of a couple of things. One, I have some questions for you, but <laughs> sure. one of the things that it reminds me of is I took my cousins who are from the East Coast. In my brain, they're kind of city slickers mm-hmm. <laughs> backpacking, and we went on a day hike up Uh, to another lake while we were out in the wilderness and we were crossing this boulder field and my cousins were just like going for it and I was like they don't really understand what it means to cross something like this like it is impossible to find your way back because there's no like major trail markers and so I was like okay I'm making little cairns along the way I was Mm -hmm. following behind them and they when we came back down from that lake they were like oh they were starting to panic because they were like we can't see the trail where we're supposed to come out and it was pretty rough terrain just in general to get up to that area but i was like don't worry guys i prepared for this (laughs) you guys were like having a great time hauling ass over boulders and i was actually paying attention so while i didn't make as many little markers as maybe would have been ideal i could see them and it was enough for us to get back across this boulder field to where the trail went back into the timber. And I think that's not something that people really think about or looking backwards. Yeah, and I think yeah. it talks speaks to the importance of mentorship in adventure. You know, and I think that'll be a theme that kind of comes up in our conversation today is we can stay out of so much trouble if we go out with people who are more experienced or if we, like, you know, have folks who can help teach us and show us the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to my question for you about your experience out in the Badlands was, what was your night in the desert like? Oh, gosh. You know, I I say the desert, you know, I might not specifically be that climate, but I know that deserts tend to be a really deeply spiritual place. Mm -hmm. And when you are in a situation that you might have been, maybe you were preoccupied with the survival aspect, but Mm -hmm. I imagine that there was some deeper impact from that experience. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Like no, nobody came and spoke to me. There weren't any like really deep spiritual Mm -hmm. experiences, but yeah, my night, it was, it was a really deep experience in the sense that it was almost like an initiation. Mm. Like here I was, Having left everything I'd ever known, I'd never been to Montana. I'd never, I'd literally driven across the Mississippi to say we had on a road trip and then we went back, (laughs) So that was as far as I'd ever gone. And so just picking up everything that I owned and stuffing it in my car and driving to Montana to live here, which now is my home forever, right? Um, 
was quite the experience. And so doing this on the way there really felt like this finding of my own strength of just being like, oh, yeah, I was I was pretty sure that I knew I could do hard things. But now I really know mm. that I can do hard things like I am a survivor, even without the skills, even without the the knowledge. Um, I made it through a rough night just kind of being smart, right? Trying to just help myself out. And um, yeah, it was kind of a desert environment. I found the one tree that I saw the entire time. That is how I knew I was really lost because I was like, would have noticed that tree earlier. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I I took that poor tree and and thank you tree, took all its, almost all of its boughs off to make myself a little nest. And I spent the night alternating between sitting cross-legged, like so with my feet in my knee pits to keep them warm because they were freezing cold. And then my knees would start to hurt so much that after about 30 minutes, I would have to switch positions and I would um, just, you know, huddle in the fetal position. And then I would know that 30 minutes had passed by again because um, I would, my feet would get so cold that I'd have to switch positions again. And so I made a rule that I was only allowed to look at my clock once an hour. And Mm -hmm. that is how I would know when it had been an hour because it was like clockwork that I would need to shift positions. And yeah, yeah, I was afraid of a mountain lion coming and getting me, but um, nothing like that ever happened. Wonderful. Well, I'm glad that you made it through that experience and that it did kind of initiate you into a lot of the ways of being and thinking and doing that you have today, Yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) So could you share us a little bit about what led you to work with adventurers and in the field of trauma with somatic experiencing? Yeah, so... At the age of 18, when I left the house, I was really depressed. I'd kind of grown up in an environment that just sort of was surrounded by um, stress and whatnot. And so at 18, when I finally had agency and was like, I can, now I can go make whatever I want of my life. I'm literally legally allowed to leave. Mm. I was basically like, I'm pretty sure that people out there are happy somewhere. <laughs> I've seen some happy people, I think. I'm going to go figure out how to do this. And so I embarked on this journey and left and, um, you know, it, it took me through to like yoga and Buddhism and meditation. And I've explored a little bit of Reiki and like all these other different healing modalities. And I finally moved to Bozeman and I got into adventure for real here. Um, and so I basically took life coach training and thought that I'd kind of had it figured out. And then some things started to go sideways for me internally in my internal landscape. And Mm -hmm. I started down the path of this like five year long dark night of the soul, which is not very fun. And they all, they happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I found a somatic experiencing sort of at the beginning of that. And for the first time in all the different healing modalities I'd tried, I really felt like at least for the mental aspect of things and my depression that the needle moved and stayed moved that I was actually getting better. It wasn't like, Oh, this seems to be helping. And I feel better for a few weeks or a few months. And then all of a sudden I'm back to where I was being like, mm-hmm. Oh crap. Yeah. Cause that had been my experience before. And then having come to Bozeman, the mentors again, I didn't have any when I started pack rafting and, um, and then with skiing, there was a lot of, um, self abandonment that was happening to, keep up with my friends who were way better skiers than me which put me in a position where I was skiing in a place I shouldn't have been in and I fell and nearly died I didn't actually get injured but if I hadn't been able to self-arrest I would have hit a rock wall at high speed and almost certainly died or maybe been paralyzed something like that it would have Mm. been really serious so after that experience and then 
when I started pack rafting, I had two really scary swims where I'm like, I am going to die if I do not get out of this white water. I have to get out now. For people who are listening around Bozeman, they might be familiar with the Mad Mile on the Gallatin River. That was one yep. of them. <laughs> and then also um, on the Yellowstone River in Gardner through the whitewater section and at really high water. Like, like I felt like I was on the Colorado River in the Grand Canyon level of whitewater. The mm-hmm. waves were just so big. Um, and so, you know... I wish I'd had mentors to kind of help step in and show me the ropes. And as a result, because I didn't, I ended up in these situations that were really impactful for my own nervous system and did cause trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I was initially drawn to somatic experiencing. I'll call it SE. Um, I was initially drawn to it because I wanted to resolve my own trauma that I knew of. And on that journey, I realized that the beginning of my life and all the stress that came from my family of origin also was really um, impactful on my nervous system in the way I was showing up in the world today. Yeah. Wow. That's quite a journey. (laughs) I'm really glad you mentioned the kind of self-abandonment piece with your friends because I think that that is something I have witnessed a lot, especially Mm. in like the Bozeman culture in Mm. that we are always trying to be out there and go, go, go and building these skills, but we're not always, or, but a lot of that is that we're keeping up with our friend group, the people that we are being entertained by and be getting some support from. And that doesn't always mean that we're doing the best thing for ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that. Yeah, we're social creatures. And really, um, I love The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. And he talks about this concept in that book where basically we are born and we have two very basic needs. One is to be authentic to ourselves and our own desires. And one is to be attached to Mm. the people around us. We are social creatures. We literally need to be connected. There are studies done that show that people who aren't connected to their community die sooner and are unwell and do Mm -hmm. not thrive. And so it is so important to us to be part of the group that we're willing to abandon ourselves in order to go and do that. And it makes a lot of sense. And we oftentimes sacrifice our own authentic needs and desires and what's best for us to serve the group or to make us make us feel like we're not endangering our attachment to the group. Mm. And it is a real conundrum and it's really sticky to learn to navigate. Yeah. I think in the outdoors as well, like with the relationship to nature that a lot of people have, that stickiness is uh, maybe increased in that the idea of going out into the woods alone and um, like you see these documentaries. I remember growing up, there was this one documentary of Dick Prenicky in Alaska building himself a cabin and living mm-hmm. by himself for like the remainder of his life. And that is so romanticized. And right. I think that there's like, it's important to note that even those people who are going out and taking a lot of time in the woods by themselves, they still have connection to others. Mm-hmm. And it is when we totally cut ourselves off from that, when we kind of start to get into a danger zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's true, like, not just us extracting ourselves from society and going out into the woods, but also extracting ourselves from our connections to other people when we are depressed or traumatized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this illusion even that we can be that independent and disconnected is the individualism especially in Montana and Mm -hmm. um, I think that it's it's such a huge illusion that we have and when we act as though we really are independent and we don't need others and we 
try to disconnect ourselves or we don't accept help and stuff it it creates a, a really big another conundrum and mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's an interesting thing yeah i think part of that illusion is this idea of it being self-reliance but right. that's not the same thing so it's important to recognize that so with se can you tell me a little bit about your unique approach and what se is really all about what you do how it works yeah totally so somatic experiencing or se is a trauma resolution modality with a body-based approach to in working with the nervous system basically so somatic soma means of the body in latin and so somatic experiencing means experiencing the body and um yeah peter levine came up with somatic experiencing and he really pulled on nature to do so he didn't come up with anything all he did was he like for so long therapists the mental health community they were just throwing stuff at the wall to see what would stick and they Mm -hmm. actually didn't know what trauma was or why people got it or when it did heal how and why it healed right and so peter levine was basically like what's going on here and he's like why do let's say you know antelope in Africa and the Serengeti like they almost die all the time they get chased Mm -hmm. by predators like why do they not have PTSD why do they not show symptoms of PTSD Mm -hmm. so he asked that question and he embarked on this journey to figure it out and he basically learned that um, the nervous system is in charge of all of that and he learned how to work with the nervous system to help complete the incomplete cycles that would basically happen that would cause trauma and so um So, yeah, with my approach, um, I use somatic experiencing in my work a lot. And basically, the nervous system, if you think about it this way, and how we evolved, the nervous system is constantly scanning our environment for threat, whether we know it or not. It's that's just what it's doing in the background all the time. It's like the operating system that's always running that we can't see. Right. And our senses are constantly scanning the environment. And when a stimulus comes in through the eyes or the ears or whatnot, the nervous system determines if it needs to generate some energy Mm. to attend to that. Um, And if it's a threat, then it will generate all this energy to deal with it. As humans, we also have this prefrontal cortex thing that uh, allows us to override those signals. And, you know, you might um, say or do something to me and I might want to be like, oh, how could you? Mm -hmm. But because I'm a nice, polite person in society, (laughs) I might be like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm just going to smile and sit here and nod. And then later on, I'm going to go bitch about it to my husband. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what happens a lot of times. And so when we override our own nervous system's impulses to complete a cycle rather than leaning forward and maybe throttling you, right? Not that we should ever do that. Um, <laughs> but still, those the impulse was there and it's mm-hmm. important to work with. And if we do tamp it down, that energy kind of gets trapped in the body and that's literally what creates, creates traumatic stress. Yeah, there's a book that I recommended to you at one point called Deep Liberation and mm. your description of that of that trauma and that stress in the body reminds me a little bit of uh, the author's description of these little kind of condensed areas of like blackness in our body Mm. where we can't necessarily see into it because we've locked it down and every time we kind of cut ourselves off of something that we're feeling and we're genuinely feeling mm-hmm. and we say no I'm not allowed to feel that or says you know my parents taught me not to feel that whatever it might be 
we add to those little dark spots in our beings, right? Yeah. And not only that, but when we say, no, I don't want to feel that, that's unpleasant, we also end up cutting off the pleasant emotions as well. Mm -hmm. We can't just block out the, the unpleasant things that we don't want to feel. The gate's open or it's closed. It's either open to feeling or it's closed to feeling. And it can't just let in the things that we want and, and not let in others. And that's the interesting thing about emotions. Like, if you, you know, think about evolution, like, why did emotions evolve? What are they actually? And one, um, one person, I've heard it said, they called emotions energy in motion. So it's literally energy that arises in the body to tell us something's going on in the environment and it gives us the energy to attend to it. So anger is the emotion of generating boundaries. When somebody, if you were to, let's say, um, take my soda from me, my, my seltzer water, um, yeah, give that back, right. And, and if I tried to grab it back from you, that anger that's arising is literally energy that's allowing me to reach out to grab mm -hmm. what, I, what I need, right? Yeah. And so if we can learn to see the emotions as simply sort of messages to us of like, you're either feeling that something in the environment is or is not good for you, then they can really become informants for us and we can really be in touch with them and learn to work with them. And they're so important. And when the unpleasant ones arise, you're right, we often do try to shut down. And that becomes like... I feel like it becomes malignancy in the body. I really mm -hmm. feel like it's the core of all the medical things that happen to us, the disease and unwellness. And that's why I also loved um, the Myth of Normal book is mm -hmm. because he really goes into detail about how that sort of happens and whatnot. So it's just such a fascinating yeah. subject. Well, I'm definitely on board with the idea that if we cut ourselves off from one emotion, we're cutting ourselves off from all of them. And I really agree with that just from personal experience and what I've seen with clients. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see those people come in and they have that welling of emotion. And one, they have no idea where it comes from. They mm -hmm. can't identify anything about it, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, whether it's sadness or joy or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. And then when we can open ourselves up to feeling those feelings and feeling them like genuinely and honestly, mm -hmm. we can struggle sometimes with the depth of our sorrow or our depression, but then the heights of our joy and happiness are beautiful. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times that could be termed as like manic mm. in today's society, but I think when you are in good relationship with your emotions and with your body, it's more about a connectivity mm -hmm. and being able to be present with the things yes. that are challenging and Absolutely. really lean into those things that are fantastic and beautiful. Yeah. Well, and I love that you mentioned sorrow and depression because in my mind, there's a really big difference. Like mm -hmm. to me, sorrow is just like this thing that arises and we need to feel it and we allow it through. Depression is what happens when something like sorrow comes up and we tamp it down. Mm -hmm. Like depression is literally being like, no, I won't feel that. Or I am going to, um, 
not feel my impulses. It's it oftentimes arises from childhood when we might have parents who are really controlling or we have to behave in a certain way and we tamp down our impulses. And that's mm-hmm. what depression is. There's a huge amount of energy being used to tamp ourselves down, which disallows there to be energy for just about anything else. And so that's really what depression is, is this we, for some reason, to keep ourselves safe and free from criticism or judgment or whatever, tamp ourselves down in our natural impulses and that tamping down is what creates the depression because there's not room for anything else. Yeah, that's so interesting because when you think about like what our natural um, <laughs> natural impulses would be in a larger environment, it's like, oh, those impulses, we have them because they're going to get us out of a situation. They're going to allow us to react faster. Right. And to if we were in that scenario, to tamp those down would kill us, right? It would right. lead to our deaths totally. because we wouldn't be able to react quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the threat, the, uh, the perceived threat, I would yes. say, that we experience in our culture now has us doing the opposite. And I'm, mm-hmm. I wonder how that is actually contributing to our like slow death over time, right? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's definitely interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Well, I think we could go on this for oh a while. Forever <laughs> and ever and ever. This is a trail that never ends. It is. <laughs> it is. Um, but we are going to move on to introducing our, I guess we've kind of already begun to introduce it, but this top, the main topic for today, which is how do we take our experiences, positive or negative that we have in the outdoors and allow them to become embodied, mm-hmm. uh, whether that is traumatic experience, how does that become embodied, or how do we take the really amazing experiences we have and allow those to become embodied? Mm-hmm. And how can we utilize the positive to maintain our connection with the outdoors? How do we release the negative so that we can continue enjoying the beautiful world around us? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think one thing that's important to know about is the negativity bias of the brain, that it's this thing that is our natural way of being wired in the brain is that we pay attention to the things that we perceive as negative more so because they might kill us. So our nervous system wants to... The nervous sister. That's funny. I might call my. I might start calling my nervous <laughs> I sister like that, that too. Nerve, it's my nervous sister. Um, that <laughs> it pays attention to the to the unpleasant things because they might kill us, mm. and that's a threat, right? Versus, it's not as important to pay attention to the positive things because it doesn't have that immediate negative impact, right? And so the negativity bias is important to keep in mind because it's we that means that we need to consciously shift our awareness to the pleasant sometimes. Mm-hmm. If we allow the negativity bias to run away with us, our whole life will feel stressful and bad and negative and maybe depressed or anxious, right? And we'll mm-hmm. be overridden with that. And we're stuck in this stormy sea of unpleasant emotions because we've never cultivated or even maybe found this island of safety within us, right? Mm. And it's so important. This island of safety feels good. It feels pleasant. To feel safe is pleasant in some way. To feel relaxed is pleasant in some way or calm or peaceful or joyous or Mm -hmm. excited, right? And so if we do not take the time to consciously feel those things and embody them and integrate them into our being, then all we know is this negative stuff over here. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to find that island of safety and to be like, oh, I feel good right now. 
what does that feel like? Oh, like the way the sunlight is streaming in through the window is awesome. Like this doesn't have to be like, oh, I get to go on vacation for a week. It can literally be just glimmers, they're called. I've heard people call them throughout the day of like, wow, my seltzer water tastes so good. This is nice. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, Don's smiling and that's really nice to be connecting in this way. You know, it can just be these little moments that bring us back to that island of safety, of perceived safety. And Mm -hmm. so it's really important to pay attention to that. So when we're out in our environment and if we're out in nature or hiking around or something, our senses are going to be bringing this stuff into us. And it's really important to allow ourselves to really soak in that goodness that we're experiencing, the beauty, or just these rocks are so cool. Like, look, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's fossils in them and, mm-hmm. and noticing that sort of stuff. And so, so our experience becomes embodied by taking in stimulus and then the stimulus creates sensations in the body to let us know this is good, go for it, or this is bad, don't go for it. And to feel when the good stuff is there, awesome. Mm. And then when the when the not so good stuff, the unpleasant things are there, to also feel them and to receive the messages that they're giving to us. Like maybe it would be good to remove yourself from this situation or like you should put a jacket on because you're getting cold. This is unpleasant, right? And allowing those sensations to inform us and feeling the impulses of what we feel like we need and what we want to do. And so that's sort of um, the somewhat brief answer of how to like become embodied in my nature experience. Well, I have a couple of thoughts there. First, I think the thing, one of the things that came to mind, and I think it's an important thing to note and make a distinguish, like to distinguish between relaxation and like true relaxation and this experience is Mm. when people say, oh, anytime I relax, I start to like, anytime I take time for myself to relax, I start to get anxious. And that is not the same as relaxing. I think that's an important thing to just keep in mind is like if you have that anxiety, you're not you're physically not relaxing. Um, But maybe there's some work that we can do to help you get to a point where you can move through that anxiety and begin to actually allow yourself to relax and experience that. Yeah, because all that that is, if you're trying to relax, but you're feeling anxiety instead, that is your body's signal that you are ignoring a bunch of impulses or things that need tending to. And mm. and this is like the message from your body saying, like, you're ignoring too much. This means that throughout the day, as some thought arises or some situation happens that's going to cause you later anxiety, you're most likely pushing away that emotion because it's unpleasant and you're not dealing with it so that finally later on when you're trying to be quiet or trying to go to sleep that thing is arising because it's never gotten the attention that it needed and um, it's time to just hold space for it and to sit with it and say like oh gosh I'm feeling anxious this is really unpleasant and just being with yourself with compassion Mm -hmm. and allowing some space for it and that's what we end up doing a lot in, in my coaching sessions. I just mm-hmm. help people hold the space for that, being like, okay, here's that thing. It's really unpleasant. It's fear. It's shame. It's anger. It's anxiety. Like, let's explore it, and let's give it center stage because left to our own devices, we oftentimes ignore those things. Mm. I love that you recognize that, that that experience of anxiety when we're trying to give space is a clear signal that we are not giving enough attention intention to the impulses that come up and what our needs and whatever might come up throughout the day i think that that is a really really valuable insight 
Yeah. So thank and you. <laughs> totally. And oftentimes anxiety, um, my therapist told me this and I, I've been experimenting with it. I'm like, do I think this is true? She said that when we feel anxious, we've oftentimes given ourselves an impossible task. Mm. So sometimes my anxiety arises because something is unfinished where I've allowed something into my life. Oftentimes it comes around boundaries and friends and the group dynamic on trips, right? Mm. Where, you know, all of a sudden I'll, I'll be like, okay, let's invite somebody to go with us somewhere. And then all of a sudden, now that they're in the picture, I start to feel this overwhelming anxiety because now I'm worried about like, well, what if they do this or what if they do that? Or, um, you know, how is this going to impact me? And so then I know that I've given myself the impossible task of trying to manage somebody else so that they don't harm me mm. and ruin my trip and my experience. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, yeah, there's all kinds of messages and anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really glad that you have brought up these kind of barriers to embodiment because it is something I see pretty regularly in my clients and they don't function in a way that really takes their bodies into account. They mm -hmm. just kind of, they have their processes. Everybody lives so much in their heads. And yes. meanwhile, the, the body bears the burden to yes. quote a book title, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, um, but we, aren't paying attention to our bodies and so we don't have that sense of what is safe mm -hmm. and we are overwhelmed or overstimulated by the stress and anxiety of what might per be perceived threat and so many people are just lost and they're hardly aware of the possibility of embodiment mm -hmm. yeah. yeah which is so sad because literally how else are we supposed to navigate life you know our our bodies exist to give us, there's this, they are this fine-tuned instrument that is telling us about our environment and how we should be interacting with our environment. And everything is our environment. Everything that's not, I don't know, even, am I, I think my body's even, yeah, my body is sending me signals, right? And so, um, but our society teaches us not to pay attention to our impulses in our body. Our society, especially since the industrial age happened, it's they, they put us on conveyor belts and they put us on this nine to five schedule and they're just like, work harder, faster, stronger, longer, go, 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 go. Okay. Ignore that you need to take a bathroom break. Ignore that you're hungry. Ignore that you're tired. Ignore that your wrists are hurting you from doing this work, right? Because then that will have an impact on our profits. Mm -hmm. And so our whole society has taught us how to ignore our body and not only that, but, you know, so many of us don't have the privilege of being able to listen when we're tired because we just we have to work to support our families and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so learning us, the learning to listen to our bodies is a skill that has been lost and our parents didn't know how to do it. And they taught us what they knew. But now we're seeing such a sharp increase in unwellness, whether it's mental illness and, and depression or other diseases that, and especially the, um, oh, what are they called? The ones that have to do with your, with your nervous system and, um, it attacking itself. Like the words escaping me. Yeah. Things like fibromyalgia. Like, like an autoimmune. Thank you. Yes. The okay. autoimmune diseases. A lot of those have been linked to be because of what's going on in our environment and, and our responses to them. So the ways that we abandon ourselves in our daily lives and then the body finally has enough and says, no, I can't do this because when we're super stressed out and we're constantly ignoring our own needs and desires, it puts stress on our system, which means that our system is spending a lot of energy 
trying to deal with the stress and the stress reaction and the energy that's required to attend to that and the other systems aren't getting as much energy and they're shutting down Mm -hmm. and they're not operating at full capacity and that's where the disease and illness ends up manifesting. Yeah, so one of the ways that I like to think about that idea is um, the body when in a stressed state is kind of doing this like field medicine emergency triage. Mm. And so to do the healing that needs to be done that our immune system requires in order to take care of our bodies, we have to get into a relaxed state. We can't be in this stress state. And so that's where we see a lot of chronic illnesses coming in, in that Mm -hmm. your body has been dealing with this for a long period of time because you've never been able to step back, relax, and allow your body to do the healing that it naturally is capable of doing. Yes, exactly. So back to the environment and the stimulus that's coming in. When a stimulus comes in and you see a tiger, then your whole body gets ramped up and ready to like fight or run or whatever it needs to do. But when your body looks out and sees like, oh, everything's fine right now. That's a signal that it's allowed to rest. Mm -hmm. And that's where the rest and digest and repair, that's where all of that comes in. And so if we can never get into that state, then yeah, that's Mm -hmm. what's going to happen. And then sometimes we look around and we don't see that there's a tiger, but the images in our brain are like the list that didn't get done or the thing that the person said, or I said this thing and what are they thinking of me now? And so we're actually creating our own stimulus just mentally that is creating stress again. And so it's so important mindfulness and learning to kind of manage our thought process or how to sit with and be with ourselves and being kind and compassionate with ourselves instead of generating critical thoughts Mm -hmm. and stressors and training ourselves to just be like, let me just kind of sit back for a minute and just, it's a skill Mm -hmm. learning to rest really. Yeah, absolutely. In the article that I just wrote for the Society, we talk about uh, a few different theories of why being in nature and immersion in nature is beneficial for us. And some of it is that understanding that we are adapted to be in natural environments. So that can help, like, because there's we're better adapted for the amount of stimulus in natural mm. environments. So that's one theory is yeah. that's part of why being in nature is helpful to bring us into a more relaxed and present state. Mm -hmm. And another theory is that because we are in an environment where we can better see the the things around us that might pose threats, Mm. we when those things are absent, when there isn't a bear in the same meadow as you, (laughs) then we can then also come down into a reduced stress state. And of course So far, the most interesting theory that I have found is that we are a part of nature. We are a part of our environment, and that is why we are drawn to be there. Um, But mindfulness is an important aspect of being in nature and getting those benefits because because if we are too caught up in our brains, if we're too overstimulated, too occupied, to miss the beauty all around us and we don't necessarily see those benefits and their physical benefits and I think it's important to for people to realize that there are people out there to help you get into the state like through somatic experiencing through guided time outdoors whatever it might be and that coaching aspect is really helpful in order to 
teach you the skills. And that's, a, I'm sure that's a huge part of what you do with somatic experiencing yeah. and yeah. Your coaching. I feel like I, I feel like I should call myself a life skills coach sometimes, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. And it was so funny as you were talking about being out in nature and stuff, I just noticed my whole body kind of went, <sighs> and I just sort of relaxed. I was like, <laughs> oh, this is nice. And because that is what trauma really is, is trauma is being stuck in the past. Mm. So when we can bring ourselves into the present moment with mindfulness and be like, right now, everything is okay. Mm-hmm. I could be sitting here and I could be like, oh my gosh, I have all the things that I haven't done yet. And like, there's oh, and the holidays are coming and mm-hmm. everything else. And I could choose to be thinking about that or alternative and this is where the mind training comes in you can train it kind of like dog like sit stay Mm -hmm. we're going to focus on the present moment and I could just be like oh but right now there's no tigers in this room with me I'm actually safe just me and my seltzer water yeah I mean my (laughs) seltzer and Dawn she looks like she's not a threat she's like smiling and happy and she looks relaxed oh I can relax Mm -hmm. and then and then I might think about Christmas coming up again and that I need to go shopping. And then it's like, no, no, like, nope, we're here right now. And right now we're just right here. And so it's this constant bringing back and being like, I am in the present moment. And right now I am okay. Mm-hmm. And trying to help sort of help the body come fully into the present moment where things are okay. Mm-hmm. I would love to come back to this in just a moment. Mm-hmm. So for those of you tuning in, I want to invite you to join the Hungry Hearts Society. This is where you'll hear the rest of this episode and you'll also receive content like the article that I spoke about, any sort of skills webinars that I'm doing from month to month, and I'm also inviting people to meet in person and join these other folks that have come into the society and make social connections, that thing that we need, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and with all of these people who share this mind of wellness and uh, making sure that we respect the outdoors and experience the outdoors in their fullest capacity in a safe and enjoyable way. So I'd love for people to join us there on the Hungry Heart Society. And for the rest of this episode, join us as Julia shares more insights on navigating and overcoming trauma, some of the skills that we can develop and practice with ourselves. And this will all hopefully lead us to have the skills, or at least some of them, the beginning of some of them maybe, to live a life of true happiness and enjoyment, enjoying the beauty of the world and being able to share that with our community, with our family, our friends for the rest of our lives.